Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're talking to Dr. Mike Rucker about his new book, The Fun Habit, How the Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you so much for having me, Christina. I am so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about fun. I think academics don't talk about fun enough, and um, I don't think we realize how vital it is to our lives. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Yeah, my name is Michael Rucker. I'm an organizational psychologist and behavioral scientist by trade. Um, I've been studying fun since, well, I guess studying happiness since the onset of the International Positive Psychology Association, so about the mid-2000s, 2006. Um, And then around 2016, really started focusing on this construct of fun. So using agency and autonomy to essentially attract joy and delight rather than kind of pursuing happiness as an ideal. Did something happen in 2016 that made you interested in fun or was it a natural evolution of the path that you were on? No, something certainly happened. So I had been using positive psychology since sort of learning it from folks like Dr. Cheek Set Me High and Dr. Seglerman, who are uh, you know figureheads in, in in positive psychology, and for folks that don't know what positive psychology is, it's essentially a facet of psychology to help people with betterment. Um, up until the point of sort of that movement, psychology had essentially been used in a clinical setting to treat deficits, and so a bunch of different psychologists had got together and said, "Hey." There's some tools within psychology that could be used to help folks that don't have deficits essentially better themselves. And so you know, that's just a quick history lesson about positive psychology. And I had certainly really been a fan of those tools. Um, they're very effective in, in, in different contexts. Um, but what had happened is getting into 2016, I had likely over-optimized my life for happiness. And so I was tracking things in spreadsheets and looking for correlations um, and really trying to just continually climb this mountain that doesn't really have a peak per se. And while I was doing that, my younger brother unexpectedly passed away from a pulmonary embolism. And uh, it kind of just knocked me on my butt. And these two things aren't related, but then a couple months later, after being a longtime endurance athlete, found out that I had advanced osteoarthritis um, quite suddenly. It was likely due to an injury that went unnoticed, and I needed a hip replacement at a young age and was told that I, I couldn't run from there on out. And so I'd always identified as essentially a runner, but also a, a triathlete. It was something you know where I found a lot of my fun, and I was told that I couldn't do it anymore. So I had this sort of identity crisis and also this, this crisis of a loved one passing away and not being able to see them. And so I continued to try and use these tools of positive psychology to quote unquote, you know, will myself to be happier. And as I was doing that, I found out that I was kind of driving myself into the ground. I was certainly becoming a lot less happy paradoxically um, and was getting close to a, a clinical diagnosis. And so through some serendipity, I had just finished my, my dissertation out of a university out of San Francisco. And so I still, you know, had, had those, that idle hand syndrome, you know, I, I had successfully defended and, um, you know, still loved digging into research. And I was lucky enough to 
uh, a finest professor out of the University of California, Berkeley, that had, um, she was at the beginning of her work at looking at this Western world's approach to happiness and being overly concerned with happiness. So not necessarily valuing happiness, you know, wanting people to thrive and flourish, but that folks that ruminated on on their own happiness and trying to achieve it were essentially making themselves miserable. And so that is really the origin story of like, whoa, okay, so I'm in this situation and I'm clearly suffering, you know, um, this fate. And if this is true, you know, these 10 years of, of using these tools effectively, this isn't an appropriate time for that. What can I do? And so I fell back on my my academic research on workplace wellness um, and social determination theory that, that, you know, where our autonomy is a key underpinning of our happiness. And I was like, okay, well, this is an interesting construct. Um, This isn't an appropriate time to be happy, but there's got to be something I can do. And so I started playing with the agency and autonomy I had over my time um, and started indexing things that were making me feel good about the world and making me feel good about how I was spending my time, but not necessarily stuck in this evaluative state of, you know, how am I going to get out of this mess? Because I really am unhappy. And so I'll leave it there because I've talked quite a bit, but that that's essentially how I got started looking at this construct opposed to happiness. You share quite a bit of that part of your story in the opening part of the book, and you dedicate it, the book, to your brother. You talk to us about the life path that you've been on and how, in addition to these horrible things happening, continuing with that mindset or with those tools was going to make you really miserable, that trying to be happy when the natural feeling is to be sad, to have grief, to mourn, becomes something called toxic positivity. Can you talk to us about sort of the relentless marketing drive in our culture to be happy at all costs and why that's toxic? Yeah, so what I've found is that essentially these are motivational tools, right? They're meant to motivate people and meet them where they are. But unfortunately, what has happened is they've been quite overprescribed, right? I meant this idea of good vibes only, which I certainly prescribe to at, at a certain um, point in my life. When that motivation doesn't hit, it creates profound dissonance in, in our minds, right? Like, oh, I'm supposed to have good you know, good vibes only, but right now I just don't feel good. So I must not be like other people. And so what happens is it's quite insidious, right? We, we're, we're talking more and more about health in all, in all facets of being this, this idea of equity, right? And so what happens is over time, as you're not really, you know, conforming to this ideal, you start to see happiness out in the horizon, and you start to identify as someone that's not happy because you're not where you want to be. And so you start to ruminate on that, right? And so a few days of that, right? Like, oh, I, I'm not where I want to be. That's fine, right? Sometimes those can be a way to get us from point A to point B. I think anyone that's gone through the process of a thesis or dissertation knows that, right? Like sometimes it seems insurmountable, especially the lit reviews, right? There's always another research paper to read. And so you need to figure out what your boundaries are. But with regards to pursuing happiness, I mean, it's even that much broader, right? And so when you start to let these external influences come in and the motivation doesn't hit, slowly but surely your subconscious starts to 
make you believe that you're an unhappy person because you're not resonating with these curated lives of influencers that aren't real in the first place. And so slowly but surely, you're like, wow, my life just isn't where it needs to be, which is obviously not true at all. But it's just so infectious that's become a real epidemic, right? Where all of these folks, you're especially seeing it with preteens and teens, are like, oh my gosh, my life isn't like that. Like, why not? Right. And so this rumination, this, you know, over introspection of not living life, not using that energy to actually go out and do things that fill you up and, and kind of being stuck in the preservation of, you know, not being where you want to be becomes, a, let's use that word toxic because that's exactly what it is. In academia in particular, I can't speak to many other fields because I just haven't had the life experience of working in them, but in academia in particular, there's a almost disdain for fun. It's silly or superfluous or not a, a serious intent. And I remember thinking when I was reading your book, I was thinking back to when I was choosing a college, I had the blessing to have a choice. I got into um, a lot of schools. And I chose a small school, um, and n not a lot of people have heard about it. Uh, it's, it's really got high-quality education. But when well-meaning adults said, well, why did you choose that over, you know, fill in the blank, some of the more prestigious names? I said, because I think I'll have a, a happy life there. And they said, well, why? And I said, well, because I can have a dog. They have a dorm on campus for people who have pets. And even if I can't afford to have a dog, it means people in my building will have pets that I can go hang out with. And it's in a place with a lot of sunshine. And it's in a place near ocean. So I can go for walks and be in nature and do things outside of my class time that I really like to do. I feel like I will make up my mind to be well-educated wherever I go because I'm going to do the reading. I'm going to take my classes seriously. But I don't feel like I can like my life circumstances everywhere. And this was seen as great immaturity among a, num a number of people. I now have the benefit of hindsight, and I still don't see that as immaturity. <laughs> um, I see that as the right choice for me. But I also learned not to give that answer anymore to academics. Um, particularly because I knew I wanted to go to grad school. I knew I wanted to get a PhD. And talking about fun or caring about things like making connections with nature or just liking to laugh at the funny antics of your friend's cat don't <laughs> seem to resonate. Where? How do we get to this place where we think we're too good for fun? Yeah, so I think, you know, I explain it that there are multiple headwinds, right? And for each person, it's going to be... Uh, a different thing, right? Oftentimes, I'll use the metaphor of when we look at, you know, how obesity has become an epidemic. Is it plate size? Is it urban design? Is it because we're working in different ways? You know, we're not so physical in our labor. It's likely, uh, you know, for different people, different aspects of the challenge. And that's true for where we're at with regards to leisure, too. It's clear that the you know, Protestant work ethic it, it is still pervasive. It's clear that the social norms here, especially in the United States, favor, you know, what I call hustle porn, right? This idea that if we're not being martyrs, that somehow 
um, we're, you know, we don't have any value in society. Um, and there's, uh, you know, the advent of uh, smart devices that essentially have been built against the attention economy so that now we're accessible to our work uh, in ways that have never been available before. So we can essentially be on uh, 24 seven if we want, and these devices reward that behavior. So it becomes, you know, essentially this downward spiral. So there's a whole host of headwinds of, of why we're here. The main issue is that we're also one of the last to course correct. So similar to in the 1990s, remember when even academics, but entrepreneurs and, and, and you know, all sorts of professions were wearing sleep deprivation as a badge of honor. Like, oh my gosh, I only got 20 hours you know, of sleep this week because I was really grinding it out. And you would almost applaud that, right? You don't see that at all anymore because after 30 years of research, we know how asinine that is, right? If someone's not getting at least seven hours of sleep, they're not being productive and likely their work is terrible. We know that empirically. We're now seeing the same things with leisure. Folks that aren't at least taking a little bit of time off the table for themselves, generally at least... 14 hours out of the 168, they're not being productive. Their work suffers. They're not able to produce as much during their working hours. And so, you know, countries in the EU that are more forward thinking and are quite frankly, more empathetic because they want to support each other's well-being instead of just grinding people out and sort of celebrating the finish line rather than worrying about the actual physiological and psychological, you know, safety of, of their employees are doing things like giving folks four to six weeks off for renewal, shutting down email servers on a Friday at 5 p.m. so that work emails can't be sent. And we know that once you put on these constraints, work productivity and, and work output doesn't go down, it goes up. And so you're even seeing that here with Fortune 500 companies that are incentivizing people to take their PTO. And this isn't you know, out of a sense of benevolence, it's because they know that it's, you know, a great way to retain employees. And also those employees are going to be better employees. And so, you know, again, to answer your question, there are a lot of reasons that got us here, but we're kind of at the onset of understanding how terrible it is and, and requires a sort of radical course correction. And so hopefully as we continually share you know, these statistics that are showing, you know, record rates of burnout, record rates of loneliness, all of these, you know, social determinants of health that are kind of falling off a cliff will slowly but surely get better. And not just for ourselves, but also that so we can show up, you know, to the folks that we care about and the work that we care about in better ways. The book takes us through so many different ways to understand the value of fun and to figure out the right way for us to have fun. You make it clear that someone telling us what is fun is not good for us and you give us science for why that is so. But one of the things I was struck by as I was reading the book is how much science you offer us for the things that you were saying. And I thought, wow, was there that much pushback against the importance of fun. This is cited almost the way historians do when we take on a controversial topic. Like, it's not just my opinion. I found 20 documents to support <laughs> this. 
were, did you anticipate a lot of backlash against the importance of fun or did you just use your training to explain it? Because there's a lot of proving that fun matters. Yeah, no, there's a ton of, you know, I think the anointed certainly resonate with the message, right? And so, you know, play advocates, folks that, um, you know, tend to have an extroverted slant are like, oh, yeah, we already knew this. But to your point, there is a lot of resistance because social norms and habituated behavior are hard to change. Not only that, but another headwind that I, you know, kind of passed up, uh, you know, that's been well documented is this idea of the U-shaped curve of happiness that's only getting broader because of modern advances in science, right? We're, for the first time ever, we're having kids later in life and our parents are, um, you know, getting older, right? And so we have an extended period of time where, and when I say we, I mean, uh, you know, parents that have kids and that also have, um, you know, their own parents that are still alive. There's this sense of duty that's never been there in, in any other era. And it's going to continue to get more complicated, right? And so we are time poor in a way that's never existed. And folks that live in that paradigm specifically are like, what can I do? Because I have all of these things that are on my plate. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of things you can do. But when you come from what I would say is essentially this paradigm of guilt, right? Like, I don't want to let down the people that I love. It really becomes hard to then say, well, I am going to have a little bit of fun. And so changing that mindset becomes extremely important. Uh, the kind of second part of your question, the big insight where I was like, oh my goodness, I'm really onto something that was just quite amazing, but wasn't necessarily, you know, you have to go and look for it is the idea of the hedonic flexibility principle. So there's this landmark study out of MIT, Stanford, and Harvard that shows that when we've been ground down to a nub, like most of us have, we, de we do tend to go look for what is called passive leisure, you know, potentially things that are unhealthy escapism, like, you know, drinking or plopping down on the couch and just channel surfing, you know, not watching anything that you really care about, just kind of pacifying time, right? Or doom scrolling on your phone, whatever it is. Those things happen for people that are ground down. But the people that are able to create bumper rails with regards to their time and do enjoy themselves a bit, go back the next day and do the harder stuff, are ready to tackle the heady challenges, are ready to dig in and actually get the work done. And so, and this study wasn't just, a, you know, like a small sample size, right? We're talking about 28,000 people um, in this particular study. So the data is there, right? If you want to be the best version of yourself, you do need to take a little bit of time off the table, yet it requires this, what some people are calling a radical course corrective, right? Because you do need to understand and slowly but surely change that habituated behavior. You know, e even if it's just recapturing two to three hours of time in your week and go, oh my gosh, okay. You know, now that I'm actually doing something, you know, for you, it, or because you brought up the anecdote, it could be as simple as just enjoying time with pets, right? Or it could be, you know, re, um, engaging in an activity that you like that's not necessarily outcome focused but something that you know you really enjoy doing and then just seeing how you feel the next day so it's a small step but to your point because of this 
you know, the sort of normative understanding that, you know, which is maladaptive, that fun, you know, is a waste of time, um, is quite problematic. You know, it does require quite a push to get to the next stage. But fortunately, once you do that, you know, again, similar to going back to sleep, like, hey, just try getting seven hours of sleep for a whole week and see how you feel on Monday. The same thing is true with fun and leisure. Like, hey, just try enjoying yourself for two to three weeks, you know, get out of this martyrdom of having to always be productive and then see how much more productive you are, you know, going into work four. and, and generally just that, you know, that simple self-experiment can get people, you know, back on the, on the rails. You take us through what I labeled enemies of fun in the book. I'm not <laughs> sure if I got that from the book or that was my shorthand. Um, and one is mis- mistaking fun for high stakes uh, arousal. And that really resonated with me because my idea of fun is much more low key. It's like playing a board game I'm terrible at, so my friends and I can laugh at me. Um, you know, I think low stakes fun can be really relaxing and it has a sense of community and high stakes and and the high arousal type tends to be off-putting to me but it may be because I know some people who are are very big risk takers and I'm not so can you talk about what what are we mistaking for fun yeah so for this I'm really standing on the shoulders of a Stanford professor by the name of Jeannie Sai um, to some degree uh, Dr. Iris Mouse who I mentioned earlier pointed me to her work but w- one of these really you know, again, an interesting headwind is that here in the West, we celebrate only extroverted, boisterous behavior, right? You know, the Instagram influencer clicking their heels on the beach and, you know, these big sort of parties where everyone's yelling. And what we know is that there are all of these low arousal activities, serenity, calm, peacefulness, that are just as fun as these, you know, crazy thing, you know, riding on a roller coaster. And yet, for whatever reason, we devalue them. So, you know, subconsciously, people are like, oh, I don't know if this is fun. Like, if that's fun for you. And so, you know, real world example for me is my wife. I'm, I'm you know, for better or worse, I, I do fit um, the generalization, right? For me, like a Rage Against the Machine concert, you know, with a ton of, of other folks sort of engaging in that and having a good time is what I find fun. But for her, it's reading a great historical fiction book by the pool. And so why is it that, you know, someone will take a picture of me and that will be like, you know, right up there, like, oh my goodness, this is a great time. And the other is sort of just passing time by when each is equally as pleasurable for that individual. And so a course correction there too, because a lot of times those things are even more guilty, right? I remember telling my dad I was getting a massage. We were in Asheville, um, you know, on vacation. And he's like, ooh, la, la, that must be nice. Like, it's just so weird, right? That people have this aversion that, you know, any sort of form of self-care, whether that's, again, going to a concert because that's what you enjoy or getting a massage because that's what you enjoy, that we have this resistance that, you know, to your point, when you shared it with people, they're like, really, that's factoring into your decision when it should, right? Again, that book is packed full of evidence that you are actually the one that's going to not just live a more pleasurable life, but likely be more productive because you are, you know, able to enter the next day with the type of vigor and vitality it takes to do the hard work. I mean, it's just, 
when you say it out loud, right, it, it gets kind of weird. Like, how have we gotten here? You explain a couple of kinds of brain chemicals in the book. Um, one chemical is released when we are anticipating fun. And another is released when we actually have the more low-key fun, if I'm understanding it correctly. So when we're anticipating fun, we have, I believe, dopamine. But when we actually appreciate and enjoy something, we have oxytocin. That's right. So again, I, I clarify in the book, and I was really careful here to interview multiple neuroscientists, so I didn't get it wrong. So just this you know, especially because this is an academic podcast, I get that I'm making broad generalizations here, but you know, the professors validated that I'm onto something. So it's clear that this idea that dopamine is a pleasure neurochemical um, is a little outdated, right? What we now know is that when we're excited by something, so you know, again, anything that's you know going to be fun and, and sort of novel. Dopamine does get released, but it generally gets released before the activity. It's really meant to alert us. It's meant to say that whatever is going to happen next, we want to encode that memory because it's likely important. And so it's really a neurochemical in the anticipatory uh, idea of pleasure. And so why that's important is that we now know behavioral scientists are using that to sort of game things to make us come back, right? So that notification, we we get this little buzz, right? And, and anyone that has like seen that little flashing light on their phone and they actually get a visceral response knows exactly what I mean, right? Like these things are sort of hijacking our attention. But oxytocin, which is a, you know, I describe in the book as a playmate to dopamine is really what is valuable with regards to the, an additional neurochemical when we feel true connection to the thing that brings us joy. And so oftentimes that is through pro-social behavior. You know, it's really been studied with regards to our connection to parents and things of that nature, because we know it gets released in mass, um, you know, with those connections, but we see it being released with anything we feel connected to. So again, that could be relationship, you know, direct relationships with our friends, but also a connection to nature or for some, a connection to spirituality or for others, a connection to a craft or activity that they really like. Like it's been studied in ballet dancers who are you know, really engaged in that act. And so that becomes really important because that neurochemical has a direct tie to us feeling empathetic, which then again sets the stage for more fun, more kindness, for being a better person, and also for resilience. Because when we know that oxytocin has been released, it allows us to have what you know we call in science um, a better sense of willpower and ego depletion. So we can do harder things for longer. And so that becomes important because when oxytocin is missing, that's when we start to see really weird behavior where we feel less sense of connection, where we feel like we do need to displace discomfort in ways that aren't necessarily um, for our own betterment, right? And oftentimes... Um, we get in these, you know, downward spirals where we keep going back to the source of that discomfort, like social media. And again, you know, in the book, I highlight several scientists that are looking at this with regards to preteens and teens that are kind of in these cycles where they, you know, are getting those little hits of dopamine through TikTok, but they're not feeling any sort of connection. So they just get lonelier and lonelier, even though they've kind of 
you know, are in this space where they think they're enjoying themselves because, you know, what I call saccharine sweet fun, right? They're, 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 they keep going back to these devices to displace that discomfort. You share various um, anecdotes throughout the book. They're really fascinating. You open with one, uh, a guy is accidentally invited to someone else's bachelor party. <laughs> Another is Abby the dog who has a bucket list. Um, would you like to share either or both of those stories with listeners? Yeah, I really like Mark's story, um, especially because I was fortunate enough to be Mark's friend. So I met Mark. Um, the movie is, uh, sorry, I'll back up. I'll, I'll say the story and then I'll give him a little bit of plug because um, I really do like Mark. Um, so I met Mark at a dog park. Uh, my wife and I were living at, in Manhattan Beach, California at the time. Uh, he had two whippets. Um, and so when you mentioned Abby, Abby was one of his whippets. Um, we had a bulldog at the time. And so it was just a casual, you know, again, a fun thing, right? Like dog parks are amazing. I, I don't, you never go to a dog park and, and um, generally not see, you know, everyone smile because just watching animals at play and having fun tends to be infectious, right? And so Mark and I connected there, but then we kind of lost touch. Um, and I found out through a, a friend that Abby, his dog, had gotten really sick. Um, and he was at a point in his life where he wanted to take a little break. He had, he had worked hard and saved up a little bit of money. And so he created a project called Abby's List where he wasn't going to fulfill his own bucket list. He was going to make a make-believe bucket list for his dog and essentially go to all of these places and allow that to happen. And so he created these amazing memories with his dog while also obviously creating a memory, you know, amazing memories for himself. Uh, and he just had a really good time. And so I think, you know, you don't necessarily need to do something as radical as Mark. Um, but there were some interesting things that happened that I think would happen with us humans as well. As Mark began to allow Abby to have more fun, it appeared to him that she was aging in reverse. She had, you know, arthritic uh, feet, so she wasn't able to move a lot before they went off on this adventure. And as they started to do more things that were enjoyable, she just got back that puppy vitality. And so what was meant to be like a couple of months ended up being almost a year, I believe. And uh, Mark documented the whole thing. He, he calls it a documentary, Abby's List. Um, but it's an amazing story, right, of someone that really became intentional about how they wanted to use their time and took a break to encode all of these really amazing memories. And he became better for it, but, you know, his pal really became better for it too. And you see this across the board. I also talk, you know, about multiple people, you know, from common walks of life that took a step back and said, I don't want to live, you know, life where it's essentially passing me by and took you know, these sojourns or sabbaticals um, and really, you know, reconnected with what we're all about, you know, and, instead of, you know, these habituated lives that we live. So sorry. And again, anyone that's interested in that story, just Google Abby's List. It's an amazing story. Well, it points to some of the um, other things that I have on my notes from the book. Um, he had a realistic timeline, given the dog's health and age and his finances, that it would only go for a short time as long as Abby could do it. But then by being really tuned into Abby, it was able to go longer and he was able to 
make real memories and document them. And that ties into one of the um, enemies of fun that you warn us against, which is over-optimizing. He didn't come up with this grand thing that was going to last for a year. It was able to do so. He had a more modest intention. How does over-optimizing our idea of fun sort of wreck the fun before it gets started? Yeah. So the broader concept here, I think, is whenever we get too outcome-focused. And so another sort of headwind of fun, right, is this idea that in psychology, we call it subjective well-being. And once you start to quantify things, right, let's say on a scale to one to 10, let's say, you know, whatever you're trying to optimize for hits a nine, where do you go from there, right? Again, that's why subjective well-being has become so problematic, but I think that's true for anything to answer your question. And so whenever you set the bar high, if it's episodic, great, right? You know, the whole, you know, uh, shoot for the moon because you'll likely hit the stars. I, I think there's some truth in that. But for folks that do it long term, eventually you're going to fail. And then, you know, then it it, it it takes you out of the moment. And so figuring out a way to create, um, you know, any sort of intentionality that's pretty easy to hit then becomes an effective strategy. So for me, um, a lot of people, you know, kind of dig into my website. It's fairly hidden. But since 2007, I've set this in intention of connecting with two really wise people doing something really adventurous and then giving back in some way. And I've only set that intention to do once a quarter. So it only happens four times a year. But now I've done it for 15 years. So I have a whole host of memories to look back on, all sorts of really interesting relationships because I've made these connections. And I feel really good about the impact that I've made in the world. And that's just this little simple system, right? But oftentimes, especially because we've been so focused on productivity, we're trying to squeeze out every minute of every day. And that just burns us out, right? I mean, I think it's a majority of people that answer emails on the toilet. I mean, you see everyone come out of the stalls on their phone. That's just gross. Like, you know, we don't ever take time to spin down and... Um, again, we're seeing the results, right? When we over-optimize in that way, when there's no slack in the system, one, we're not having fun, and two, eventually we're going to burn out. You talk to us also about for people who require creative thinking to problem solve or to create their work, working longer is counterproductive. You can't become more creative if you work 16 hours a day than if you work three hours a day. Creativity doesn't work that way. And one of the things that is important to you about explaining the fun and why we need it is that it protects the psychological space we need for renewal. Do you want to talk about why that's so important to you for people to know about? Yeah, this was some of the only original research in the book. And so what I've you know, discovered and then also seen for myself is when we, you know, later in life, because of this deluge of incoming information to be able to survive. So I'm not villainizing this at all, but as adults, we need to create what science calls heuristics, right? We essentially need shortcuts to be able to figure out what's not important and what's important. And so over time, that becomes really a linear process, right? Like, you know, something as simple as taking my kids to school. Okay, I need to get them lunch. I need to figure out where my phone is so I can start my car, get in the car, take them to school, 
get back, right? And so that's just one micro example of all the little scripts and algorithms we have to be able to successfully navigate life. The problem is that trains our brain to think in a linear fashion. And then also we know that as we get more tired, we can't think out of the box. We really rely on those because personal sort of scripts become comfortable, right? We can do those when we're tired. And so some of the original research that I saw is that uh, I would um, uh, view folks in experiential play areas that were meant for children, but obviously their parents would take them there. And so these kids and parents would come in these amazing areas with all these blocks and creative ways to enjoy themselves. And the kids would go immediately to whatever they found that resonated and start doing these amazing things, right? And like laughing, storming, norming, and forming, you know, you know, creating friendships, figuring out uh, the roles, the rules and roles of play, and just really enjoying themselves where you would see the adults like slowly but surely back into the wall um, because they didn't have instructions. They didn't know what to do. And they would literally sit there kind of dumbfounded until, you know, they had the courage to ask somebody like, so what are we supposed to do here? And that's just a great metaphor for, you know, how we're operating now in adulthood, that we're kind of waiting for instructions. We're waiting for that training. And so creating that sort of playful space where it's like, all right, for these three hours of your workday, you're relinquished of having to do it the right way. You can, you know, create this space for nonlinear thinking, for coalescing different outside ideas to create innovation, innovative solutions. And when you're able to do that, you know, sort of give your give yourself permission to be in that playful space. That's where re, real creativity thrives. And so it does require a couple things. One, it requires us to have some energy to be able to do that. Again, when we're worn out, you know, we just want to do what we know. And then it also requires for some people that permission to say, you know, in here at the if at the end of three hours you don't get it right, that's okay. You you move on. The game had you know a set finite amount of, of play space and now it's over and no harm, no foul that, you know, maybe this particular time you didn't win the game. And so and I hope that answers your question, but essentially that's why it becomes important. A lot of us are getting less innovative because one, again, we're just so worn out. We don't have, um, you know, uh, the creative energy to do so. And then two, some of us don't give ourselves permission to actually play in that space. Yeah, it does answer my question. It makes me think about the group that um, I have game night with right now. Um, and I've mentioned that we tend to play games that I'm really bad at and, and <laughs> I'm happy to, to laugh about it. But we do reach a point where if you've just been doing dismally, you can do something called Wookiee Rules, which is just cheat with abandon. Nobody cares because <laughs> you've announced that it's Wookiee Rules and you can just do whatever because at some point you may stop having fun. Even if you're not trying to be outcome driven, there can be a way that you're no longer fully participating because you're not really fully in it, right? It's just not the right game for you. And so at some point, if you're really having a difficult time, you can announce wiki rules and just do whatever so that you're back in the game. And you're not, yeah, you may not have your win actually count, but it does up the fun because you've sort of randomized it too, right? As long as you don't do harm to someone else. I mean, we're, we're, we're good people playing this game. Um, it's just going to add a, a moment of, of controlled chaos, right? Nothing bad's going to happen, but they don't really know. And it, and it brings the creativity back, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, 
again, this is one of those weird things where you feel this resistance, like, oh, so you're just one of those folks that feels like everyone should get a participation medal. Like, absolutely not. I, you know, I'm an entrepreneur that had a successful exit. There are going to be certain games where you want to win, and that's okay. And so, you know, figuring out what game you're playing at any given time, you know, makes sense. But sometimes you want to play that game where there are Wookiee rules. And then I also think, you know, there should be good sportsmanship, right? Like sometimes you do lose the game and why not celebrate the other team for doing a great job? It's just really interesting that, you know, sometimes everything has to be Boleyn for folks, right? Like, oh, okay, well, are you saying there are no losers in life? Like, that's not what I'm suggesting, although I certainly think there aren't, you know, quote unquote losers in life. But I do think, you know, we live in a meritocracy, so we we have to um, understand that to some degree, right? You know, in your world, some people are going to get tenure and some aren't. So to suggest that we shouldn't have some facets of life where we understand the rules of the game, I mean, that would be asinine, you know, eventually people would fail. But we're so over-focused on that, so over-focused on the outcome that we, you know, oftentimes we're living life with blinders and, and, you know, that leads to these weird outcomes that we've discussed during the podcast. One of the things I've noticed is several of the examples you've given uh, really are good uh, illustrations of what you've urged us to develop in our habit of fun, which is developing a feedback loop. The gentleman who documented the adventure with his dog built in a, a feedback loop. And writing down some of your stories of your own adventures with fun in the book has created a feedback loop. Um, and the feedback loop is a way that we continue to enjoy the activity or action after the moment. Can you talk about the value to us of adding a feedback loop to our fun habit? Yeah. So this is essentially an extension of gratitude. And so whatever cadence feels right for you. Um, taking some time to reminisce in the things that you found really enjoyable becomes an, a proactive practice in one, really savoring fun after the moment. So it extends you know, the value that we get from these fun activities because you're like, wow, that really was cool. And oftentimes we can get ourselves back into that space, that, you know, that, that feeling of, of how that particular event happened. But also taking the time to do that makes us more wise of what we want to continue to do in the future. So I like using this metaphor of, you know, time is like a river, right? I mean, we're always going down, you know, the, the extension of time. And um, some things bad are going to happen, like, you know, the death of my brother. And some things good are going to happen, like the, the great game night you have with your friends. We do have the ability to bias our time towards those things that we find enjoyable. And so figuring out what those things are through a little bit of introspection, not too much so that you're worried about making sure that they're there all the time, but understanding what you really feel connected to, and then potentially what you don't feel connected to. Like, oh, this is really you know, a, a great time, but I didn't like the environment that we did it in. Maybe we can switch that up, right? There's sort of three aspects that tend to be the main variables of how we do enjoy our time. And it's generally the people that we're with, the activity that we're doing, or the environment we're doing it, um, excuse me, the environment we're doing it in. And so 
looking at those three aspects as we reminisce our pleasurable activities, we can start to figure out what we want to do more and maybe as importantly, what we want to do less. You invite us to create a play model and it's it's a very easy to find diagram in the book, but essentially it's a way of sorting our activities. If we consider how we're going to make time for fun, even if it's small snippets of our day or our week, one way we can start to figure out if we're already having fun or what kinds of things are fun and what things we thought were fun, but they're really just a time suck like social media or mindlessly watching a show that you actually don't like um, is to have us sort our activities into the play model. In the few minutes we have left, do you want to talk about how this can help make our life less agonizing? And that's a direct (laughs) quote, make life less agonizing. Yeah, I think, you know, it's kind of the pedestrian first step into this, but just being mindful of how you spend your time, becomes important. And it speaks to everything that we've talked about, you know, throughout the podcast. So many of us have kind of, you know, kitted ourselves like, uh, you know, I'm doing fine. And then you look back at how you spent your previous 168 hours. And you're like, wow, okay, there's a few things here that I've habituated that just aren't a good use of my time. And so the play model real quick stands for pleasing, living, agonizing and yielding. And the pleasing and living categories, you know, I, I explained in the book are essentially the things that we enjoy doing. And I talk about why that's important. But to answer your question specifically, we're talking about the two things in the bottom quadrant, which is yielding, which are activities that don't take a lot of energy, um, but that we don't really find fun. And those tend to be the things that we don't really realize we're doing until we become mindful about how we are spending our time. Agonizing are things excuse me, agonizing activities are things that do take a lot of energy. So we generally do know we're doing them um, and aren't fun. But looking at those, generally you can get creative about either making them more fun. So I talk about a tool called activity bundling, you know, where something like for me, for instance, it's domestic work. I, I really don't enjoy it, but I love gangster rap for whatever reason. And I can't listen to it around the house because I have uh, two young kids. And so I plop on, uh, you know, big headphones and I get to listen to this really enjoyable music for me uh, while I do that activity. And so now I don't mind it because it's kind of my time. Right. And so, um, again, that's just one example of many of how um, things that we really don't enjoy doing, perhaps if we look at them more creatively using a whole you know, set of different strategies, we can potentially turn that time that we don't really like into time that we do like or find creative ways to reduce that time because we hadn't really thought about it critically. Um, And once you create that space, uh, then you can start to fill it in with things that you really do enjoy. And that's a good sort of invitation to say one thing that's extremely important. The crux of the fun habit is certainly not to add fun as another bullet on your to-do list. So thanks for bringing up the play model because I want everyone to know that the first step in this is to create some space so that fun can thrive. It's not to just tell you there's one more thing you have to do in your adult life. We've talked a lot about obstacles to fun and and attitudes about fun and even examples of fun, but one 
synonym people often have for fun is happy or being happy. And in the few minutes we have left, I wonder if you want to talk to us about how they're really different. You open the book by saying that your deliberate concerns of being happy only drew your attention to what was missing, making you more unhappy. How can an attention to fun help us avoid the unhappiness trap? Yeah, so we discussed some of it, right? That rumination yeah. um, really sucks your energy for having fun. And so where I you know, say that they're different is that happiness, at least the way we describe it in the Western world, really becomes this act of evaluation, right? It takes you out of the moments that are enjoyable so you can sit and think, wow, am I happy? You know, how do I compare it to my neighbors? You know, um, you know, you're, you're basically in the state of searching where fun is really an action orientation, right? When we're deliberate about finding opportunities to connect us to things that we really enjoy in psychology, we call this valence, things that we're attracted to or that we find pleasurable. Then we index those things in our life to the point that it makes sense. Right. And so oftentimes people are like, oh, are you just trying to prescribe a life of whimsy? You know, like going from Burning Man to Burning Man? Like, no, what I'm suggesting is that all of the data that we've we've looked at says we are not having any fun at all. And it requires us to be deliberate to just integrate a little bit of that back into our lives so that we can show up as the best versions of ourselves, because right now we clearly aren't right what would you like to see going forward? I think this course correction of understanding that we really aren't having fun and how important it is to reclaim a life that's enjoyable. And so I don't think I would have said this right when the book was released, but now getting to speak to folks like yourself and just coming back from the book tour, I'm really seeing out there that people don't know why they're giving their time away, right? Like, I think it's important to be passionate. I think it's important to have a hard day's work, you know, especially in academia. I think, you know, what researchers are doing are extremely important. This book, you know, was standing on the shoulder of giants, as it were. So, so many people are doing important stuff, but we're grinding ourselves down to a nub and we're also just not really like, you know, liking where we're at. You're seeing it across the board, all these, you know, really interesting byproducts of, of folks not really enjoying life at all anymore. And so the corrective that we had with sleep, I think we're again on the cusp of, of seeing that with leisure. And so at the end of the day, I would really like to be one of the folks, you know, I don't need to be the, but what I would like to see is the U.S. have this course correction of, understanding that we really should start to enjoy our time a little bit more. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Mike Rucker, and telling us about your new book, The Fun Habit, how the pursuit of joy and wonder can change your life. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and this is The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.